and welcome back to the Lightfoot Podcast. This week I'm joined by Justin Scott Campbell for a fascinating conversation about the connections between identity, social change, racial justice, and the somatic experience. We explore some of the themes in Justin's writings and trace his development arc from professor to diversity trainer to somatic coach. We also delve into the ideas of Octavia Butler, Ursula Le Guin, and Adrian Marie Brown. Justin even coaches me in real time around how best to structure communities of practice that don't crumble under the pressure and weight of looking more directly at uncomfortable truths. I hope you enjoy basking in Justin's wisdom as much as I did. Without further ado, I bring you Justin Scott Campbell. Justin, welcome to the Lightfoot Podcast. It is an absolute pleasure to be here with you. Thank you. Uh, I'm so appreciative of you having me here. Um, thank you for, for the invitation. Yeah. And I just discovered in the last couple of days that you're a bit of an, uh, uh OG podcaster. You were doing this about six <laughs> years ago and buried in SoundCloud is a yeah. wicked little playlist of some of the conversations you had. So how does it feel to be back on the mic? You know, it feels like I've entered into a different world. I feel like so much has changed in in six years in terms of the technology that allows us to to share with each other, to speak to one another. Uh, and so you've taught me a lot even in, in just doing this podcast of <laughs> I have this and maybe this is a, 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 you know, a larger metaphor, but I had, oh, this is the way podcasting works from my, you know, experience six years ago. But again, so much has changed in that amount of time. And so. Uh, it feels cool to be getting back into it with you in this in this new, I would say, more improved way. Uh, to be mm-hmm. honest, to be completely mm-hmm. frank. So, yeah. Um, yeah, thank you again. Yeah, and that's an interesting theme we were just riffing on a bit before we started. Of like, I went back and listened to some of your podcasts, and that's you know f- six years ago now. And I mean, a it's just the um, historical record we have now since the era of podcasting is unbelievable i mean historians yeah. in the future it's, it's gonna be easy to you know like track the trends of what was going on right but then also this interesting feeling i always have this feeling when i read my own journals even from like you know 15 years ago now mm-hmm. everything's changed and nothing's changed and mm. it's like listening to you talk about issues of of race and social justice was like wow they're completely relevant to what's going on now but everything's different and that's like this eerie i don't know it's kind of maybe a cognitive biases i don't know what yeah you know what i mean by that effect yeah and i i i hear you because when i think about that time if anybody does go and listen to it you know that was we were just talking about this that was the spring i did all these episodes in the spring of 2016 uh, in the midst of the presidential election here in the United States, in which you know it was Hillary Clinton running against Donald Trump, and mm-hmm. so so many of the conversations are grounded in that storyline from the pre-election narrative. And so, going back and listening to it, I can. There's a part of me that wants to you know judge the naivete of that moment, but. It also is, like you said, a time capsule. It's it's like a ring in a tree. It just speaks to where I was at, where you know the people I was talking were at, both in our own personal processes, but also in the larger historical context of what had happened and what hadn't happened and what we didn't think could ever happen that actually mm-hmm. happened. Um, and so uh, that, is, that is just something, like you said, when reading the journals to reflect upon and, and see 
you know, like you said, how much has changed, but how much hasn't. And so, yeah. um, And that strikes deeply for me at the heart of another really fascinating question around like ideas of developmental psychology and just growth in general, because I tend to feel like I've changed more than I have. And then I can kind of apply that to other people and systems. And it's like, nah, I was kind of already wise and stupid when I was that age in the same ways that I'm wise and stupid now. And it makes me, it even opens me up to more metaphysical ideas of like, what are we when we come into this world? What are we bringing with us? Is it just the, the, you know, encoded story of our genetics and the, and the, the many manifold interesting, you know, trauma stories that can come through that as well? Or is there more to it? Is there some sort of soul? And when I look at my young little nibblings, is there something there that, that is older than the, the brief time they've been on the planet? So yeah, it, it gets me thinking deeply. Yeah. And I, I can't help but think that the answer is yes to everything, you know, that that's, that's where I'm at currently, you know, is that is yes. And, uh, mm. and I'm curious about that, what that looks like in so many different iterations, whether it's as organizations or as people, as governments, you know, it's a, it's a yes. And, and I think mm. it, the, the act of accepting that, um, is the beginning, you know, mm. Yeah, that's beautiful. I um, so I want to paint a little bit of a picture of of you for our listeners. You are a father. I mean, I'm getting this off like your Instagram page. So these are your own words. You're a, a father, an English professor, a diversity and inclusion trainer and coach. I you're a writer as well. Um. And that's something that I'm going to link to in the in the show notes. You you're a, you're a great writer, in my opinion. I've no, really thank you. enjoyed reading uh, your interviews and your articles. And uh, there was one in particular. Maybe if you feel comfortable to speak to this moment, you describe when you were an English professor, you were walking to class, and you saw a reflection of yourself in in the window. And maybe you could talk to to us a little bit about what you saw and why that moment was pertinent for you. Yeah, so that was written while I was in grad school. Um, I think it might have been my first published nonfiction piece. I, I studied creative writing. Um, I studied fiction. That was my main uh, genre. And so I wrote a lot of short stories. And But this was the first time I had ventured into nonfiction. Uh, and it was incredibly inspired by the person mentioned in that piece, who was James Baldwin and his work, and uh, really falling in love with um, both his his work itself, but also his, his positionality, the way his embodiment in the world. And so it inspired me to reflect upon my own embodiment. Um, I had read stranger in the village and I had kind of walked away from that kind of thinking about the difference between how I see myself and how the world sees me and my embodiment and, and, and the embodiment that, and the weight that my embodiment carries when I walk through the world. Mm noticing that it's different. And so when I walked past this big reflective, you know, multiple story high building of, of, of glass, you know, this, this, this enormous mirror, I saw the version of myself that I was creating in order to be able to adjust for the embodiment assumptions that people had about me mm. when they would see me. 
And so I was wearing khakis with a belt with a tucked in button down shirt. <laughs> and, you know, one of my colleagues who I hope he listens to this is a good friend now. He would always say, you know, hey, you look like a Bible salesman, which, you know, <laughs> I have a very religious upbringing. And so that was always like <laughs> rub me the wrong way. Um, but I used to, you know, we used to have these conversations, you know, in which I dressed that way because I was also a very, at the time, young professor. I was teaching. I was probably... I think I was about 24, 25, teaching mm-hmm. 18 year olds. And so I felt the need to, you know, bring about some kind of respect and authority or whatever through my dress of like, this is the, the costume of a professor, right? But the other thing that was going through my mind in terms of the calculus of the time was, I'll give an example, I'll share a story. I remember one time it was late. I was had stayed late for a class. You know, the parking garage was empty. And inadvertently, for my car just had this thing where um, I would do all the right things and open it and the alarm would go off. Um, and I remember it was late at night again and I did that. And the car alarm went off and there was no one around. And I remember feeling in my body this panic mm. because I knew it was my car, but mm. nobody else knew it was my car. And, you know, campus safety would do their sweeps, you know, especially at night. And in that moment, I thought to myself, this is why I wear this. Mm. Because as soon as somebody comes around the corner, they do a, a first initial impression of, of me and something. They see the scene. Right. And it's like, oh, OK, I think I know what's going on here. But then they see the Bible salesman outfit. Right. And it's like, oh, that's a, oh, OK. He's one of the good ones. Yeah, definitely. That's the process going on. This is the, you know, these are all second, you know, and so this essay really caused me to stop and reflect about, okay, is that what I want to do? Yeah. You know, is that a process now made conscious that was subconscious, right? Yeah. A habit of mind that I, that I kind of had just had, is that the way I want to keep doing it? What do I want to be, you know? Yeah. Um, in the world. And so, yeah, that, that was a very powerful moment for me, both in the experience of it, but then also writing about it and sharing about it. Um, being able imagine. to, to bring awareness of folks who had no idea that that's the, the way I, you know, I was thinking or, uh, what have you that, and, and be able to have support around that, hmm. um, and bring it to light. Um, and which, yeah, let go, ahead. go of some of the shame around that as well, I imagine, right? Because if it's kept with you, it's kind of become shameful, which is even worse. Yeah, and let go of the, the burden of it. The strain of carrying this stress around how I show up in the world and, you know, what that could mean about my safety, you know, yeah. and in situations in which I maybe didn't do anything quote unquote wrong. Um, and the ways I try to get ahead of that, you know, anticipate it. And through this embodied kind of like performance uh, that in some ways was genuine, but it also was very much arranged around what other people would think of me when they saw me. And this thing that they already had in their head that I would have to then counteract with what I did. It's a lot of gymnastics. Like it's like, it's like, it's a lot of mental work that, you could be using for other things, you know? Yeah. So. How exhausting all of that. Right. But yeah. I mean, 
that's a touching piece. I didn't know that was your first piece of nonfiction writing. I mean, it's it's good. It touched me deeply. And thank you. Also, I mean, fuck. Yeah, it touched me on a few levels, man. I think it was that was the piece where you write about how you you've got some level of awareness of just what objects you can use to protect yourself in any moment that you're attacked just for being who you are. Yeah. And that struck me really deeply. And I guess I want to presence and honor that a little bit, that that's an experience I don't have. And yeah. I'm, I'm not seen as a threat. I'm not a particularly large dude. I don't grow a very impressive beard and I'm white. So I don't get that. And I just don't get it. And I felt deep compassion and love for you in that moment uh, through reading those words. And yeah, I, I've, I'm, I'm really keen to delve into that a bit more in this discussion and to talk about how we can start to unravel some of the knots that we've tied ourselves up in as a culture and society and individually and how that links to community work and then also to individual somatics and trauma and, and, and how all that's layered together. And so, yeah, I'm excited to get into it with you. Yeah, no, thank you. Um, I think as I wrote that essay, you know, I named the, the, the parts of me that people see, you know, yeah, that I'm six foot six, that I'm tall yeah. black man and, 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 you know, and the ways in which I even somatically contort my body to mm-hmm. be less of a threat and things like that. And this idea of embodied experience and the calculus that goes into every moment, you know, isn't something that's, you know, only mine. There's so many embodiments in, in the, in the world in which that's what folks do. And so that's so much energy, so much, um, of that is associated too with trauma. And so I just want to name that too, that I'm, it's not just me, you know, it's also uh-huh. that that is part of the collective experience that, you know, we can, we can speak to, we can, uh, yeah. you know, be with each other in the pain yes. of that, you know, uh, because it's very isolating if you don't have that kind of freedom to share or the impetus to share, you know, and so, or the space to share and feel seen and heard as you are. Yeah. I keep coming back to somatics and embodiment as just really everything at the moment. It's this lens through which I'm really starting to explore myself over this last year, really going into my own trauma and blind spots and, you know, somatization of a lot of repressed emotion. And once, I don't know, a few of my friends have also gone through that process together. And that's been really beautiful. To go through it together is really profound. Mm-hmm. And I just can imagine as we start to do that more collectively, how much joy and pathos is going to come from that. Because yeah. I'm finding there's people that kind of have gone on that trip and there's people that haven't yet. Well, they're on the trip always, mm-hmm. but they might just not be aware of it yet. Right. And that for me is this kind of bright distinction I'm seeing of, am I going to feel understood in this conversation or not? If I refer to the fact that I'm contracting a little bit or, you know, my sympathetic nervous system is talking to me or any of these little cues, if we don't have that language or that understanding, that can just sound like cling on to someone. They're like, what are you talking about? And there's all sorts of, uh, 
yeah, I guess there's an imperative I'm seeing there of, of really mainstreaming these ideas as quickly as possible because they're gonna they're gonna get us out of so many binds. I feel. Sorry, I have some gnats uh, flying around me. Um, Getting swarmed. Yeah, but my my houseplant gnats. I agree with you 100%. And I think that one of the powers of somatic experience for me is the relationality part of it, uh-huh. right? The, the idea that it's not just about my somatic experience of myself. It's about how do I hold space for you to see your posture when you shrink hmm. and say, I see you. I see you. I witness you. I witness your body constricting in this way. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to. I want to shout out my my good friend uh, Melina Martinez, who whose work is really excellent around somatic work. And mm-hmm. one of the things in working with them that I learned is how powerful somatic work can be in groups around creating safety. Mm. That when we begin to tap into the you know our individual spaces of fear and how those show up in our bodies and we can even have conversations about that 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 gives us in itself a kind of safety to be able Mm -hmm. to know that we can and that this is allowable here and there's such a an adept practitioner at creating these types of space and i learned so much from watching them do this in real time Uh, and so it's really shown me in my own work uh, okay this is this works it works so quickly and that's in the moment you feel that you feel yourself drop in mm. to a, a grounding moment. You feel your heart rate change. You can feel these shifts. It's not about the thoughts, but it's this felt sense uh, of presence of being. Um, and so their work has really kind of inspired me to, to kind of explore that in my own work and, and bring mm-hmm. that in even more so because of how, uh, how powerful it can be. Um, I think you mentioned kind of like the pathos of it, but also the healing. Yeah. Um, how much healing comes from letting those parts of us be seen that have for years been holding these unsustainable, constricted positions to just open up and let ourselves be viewed as whole and balanced. Mm. And, you know, and even as we're talking, I'm feeling it. You yeah, know? me too. I'm, I'm, feel, I'm feeling that, <laughs> that grounded sense of presence. Yeah. And you're in Melbourne and I'm in LA. Uh-huh. And yet we are having this this experience. This is our first time talking on on in you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. We don't have 17 years of history. Mm-hmm. And yet through these practices we can connect with one another. Yeah. Um, across these uh, our bodies, you could get into the energy of it and all that stuff, the relational field, ideas mm-hmm. like that, but something is happening. Yeah. Something is happening in a way that I've never quite experienced when I'm just talking to someone. Yeah. And just sharing ideas. That's great. I'm not saying it's bad, but there's something unique about being witnessed and being able to witness mm. in this somatic way in real time. Yes. It feels good. It feels right. It feels true. And I'm starting to get a little bit more adept at surfing it now. Like I kind of equate it to that kind of lucid dreaming experience where as soon as it happens, I wake up and there's this edge of like 
because it's the unknown as well, right? Because it's like leading with the heart first before the mind can filter it. So there's this kind of slightly activating, exciting, almost rushy if you let it be edge, but the more you can just relax into it and trust, it, it can start to just, you just melt into that. And that's a whole nother layer of kind of deliciousness of feeling safe in the edge of the opening together and then it can deepen and yeah it just feels like it just feels like the right way forward hey like to me like the intuitive pathway that we want to try and direct our social relationships our political structures our economic systems as much as they can tap into what is here what is now what is inside of us then they're just they're going to be kind of right and true is my kind of take on it. Yeah. I think for me, as I've um, been doing this work, I think which everything you just described, I resonate with so much. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think in the practice of doing this work specifically in trainings and things like that, where we get into things of like anti-racism, mm-hmm. that feeling that you just describe uh, what some would call the green zone, the relational space, moving out of fight or flight, moving out of, you know, threat and enemy, um, around ideas. We get into that space so that we can be in choice. We can be in conscious relational choice as opposed to triggered, dysregulated, threat level, extinction event. (laughs) You know, like extinction level event, you know, and this is the work of Resmamenicum coming in, right? About Mm -hmm. the ways in which it's specifically in America, but in other places too, race has this, he says it has a charge to it. Mm. It has a charge to it. And that's not just like ideologically, it's energetically, it's in the body, I believe. And so specifically watching like I said, Melina in our work together as we co-facilitated spaces last year around this time, seeing how much that somatic practice work gave people the bandwidth and the capacity to actually look at the history, Mm. to look at what I call, I call it the abyss. Mm. This abyss of race that we as a society for the last since in America, 400 years have been circling around, but never looking into afraid mm-hmm. of what it has to tell us about ourselves. And so when we get into the, this, the way you just described, when we get our bodies in that space, we can then say, what does this have to teach me? We can be curious. We can be relational. We can, we can move forward towards it as opposed to avoiding it, running from it. It's going to destroy me. I can't, I can't deal with it. I can't handle this. Right. Um, and so I think that's where the combining of those practices with that, uh, with exploring these types of topics is so I think useful in the moment. Yeah. Or else we just don't have the bandwidth. Hey, we can only stay in the frying pan for a couple of seconds before we bounce out. And we don't get to marinate in the, the truths underneath that can essentially free us because we can we can honor them and hold them and grieve them and 
move forward from that place rather than have repressed difficult truths forever poking in our unconsciouses, you know, from all sides of the story. And yeah, I'm so you talk to me a little bit about how you went from English professor into uh, diversity and inclusion trainer and then brought in the somatics element. Maybe kind of if you could bridge that together, that'd be interesting. Yeah. So I, I owe a lot to a constellation of influences of people that have come into my life and shaped me and given me a vision for what could be possible when I thought it wasn't. Mm-hmm. And so for me, you know, I, I came into diversity and inclusion work kind of by accident. Um, I was working as an adjunct. Actually, I was working in a, in a staff position at a community college um, mm-hmm. here in California. And I was working as a director of a group for um, African-American students. And I just happened to be at a training event. And I saw the facilitator give this presentation on equity. But it was equity framed from a, from a perspective of how do we treat each other? How do we want to treat each other? Is the way we do things, is the way we talk to one another, the way we talk behind each other's backs, the way we, you know, don't collaborate, the way we we have, you know, 25-year-long beefs and grievances on campuses, is this the way we want to work together? And what does this do in terms of, the, you know, hindering our students' ability to access us um, as resources and things like that? So it was just... I had been experiencing that in the role like heavily. I was like three months into this role and I just was coming up against all these blocks in which I'd be like, hey, can we bring these two departments together? And it'd be like, no, they haven't talked to each other in, in 20 years. And I'd be like, Whoa. but the students need like some support. Like they could use your support. And it was like, no, we can't do that. So when I saw this, the first, I just remember it as clear as day. Um, it was, it was like medicine. That I didn't know I needed, but as soon as I encountered these I, this way of thinking, of, of asking questions, of approaching the world, I mm-hmm. knew it was something that I wanted to understand more. I wanted to bring into my own life, um, and I wanted to help be a part of getting out into the world, um, mm-hmm. the good medicine, you know. Um, and so I remember I went up to the organizer who I knew, and I was like, can you introduce me to the speaker? Um, Dr. Veronica Kiefer-Lewis is, is her name. Um, mm-hmm. and she's still my mentor, uh, and I still owe so much to her, but the facilitator was like, or the, the organizer of the event was like, oh yeah, sure. Can you take her to the airport? And I was like, yes, yes I will definitely <laughs> take, I will definitely take you up on that. And so I remember we were driving and I was like, I, I just love everything you're saying. And I just want to be on the team and, you know, like, can you, and you know, I'm sure she got that a lot at the time and still does. Yeah. And she was very gracious with me and was like, that's great. You know, and next time I come down, like we can have a conversation. And that just started a relationship um, in which I've just been so grateful for to be able to sit under her expertise, 30 years of expertise in doing this, this work and learning from her and her process. And, yeah. um, seeing the roads she's walked down and the conversations she's already had. And she's coached me through so many of those things. And so I shadowed her for two to three years and came to a place of uh, wanting to get into the work. And she gave me my first like gig and everything. And, uh, and so that just basically got it, got it, got it started. Um, and ever since then I, I've, I've been, I'm still a professor, um, but I also, 
you know, do this work around diversity and inclusion with the training. And so my work shifted into that training with her, starting to train on my own, you know, everything last summer happened. And that was a big turning point as well in terms of me shifting my focus a little bit from unconscious bias work and courageous conversations and things I think are really valuable tools to have because I, but I wasn't giving any anti-racist talks, you know, I wasn't okay. doing these hard his looks at history or things like that. And so, um, really inspired by, um, the seeing white podcast, um, which is out of Duke, I believe, um, and their focus on history and the role yeah. of looking at history and how that helps us understand the present and how a historical, you know, especially in America, we can be about, you know, like, for example, people will see something like George Floyd and, and be kind of befuddled. That's the word I always use. Mm. Like, how did this happen? Mm. Why is this happening? I'm so confused. Or the response to what happened, like, you know, cities, yeah. you know, things like that. People will see that. And it's it's this ahistorical understanding, and a lot of times of mm -hmm. not knowing, never never having read about 1992 or 1965 or Tulsa or you know Red October, you know these different moments in history in which the same thing happened, you know, and how these cycles keep repeating, and so really taking a little bit of a shift into what does it look like to do, do this deep dive, realizing that even in doing those deep dives as groups and collectives, sometimes we hide in the collective space uh, mm -hmm. around where our own fears, insecurities, you know, not knowing where we fit into this work, you know? And so realizing that in the one-on-one -on -one space, there's so much power there, both somatically, but also in terms of getting into where people's individual processes are around maybe mm -hmm. aversion or avoid avoidance or anxiety. Uh, and being able to kind of walk folks through their own individual journey. So that's that's really where my work is is really shifting and evolving into. Um, mm. It's not to say I don't do any of the other ones, right? I just mm -hmm. think that they just have different, they work in different ways. And so, um, yeah, the, the somatic piece really came about through um, some of the work I did in, in um, healing justice spaces. Um, not that I was doing it, but I was able to go and sit under a bunch of people um, from a distance, Adrian Mary Brown's work has been incredibly impactful for me yeah. um, in that um, going to the Allied Media Conference in 2017, which is a big um, conference uh, out here in, in, in the U.S. Uh, that was in Detroit. That was a big uh, practitioner space that was just opened my mind a lot in terms of what was possible for, for activism in terms of mm -hmm. it coming from this healing justice perspective. Um, so there's just been a lot of, uh, of folks in that way that have been incredibly influential to me and from whose work I draw on so much. I mentioned Resma Menachem already. Um, mm -hmm. The work of um, of uh, Frank Wilderson III, his book Afro-Pessimism was a big mm -hmm. eye-opener for me. Um, and then also the work of Doug Silsby, who was a, an executive leadership coach who wrote a book about presence-based coaching and presence-based leadership. Um, that's the school that I am trained in as a coach. And so um, the importance of that's really where I'm where I got my somatic training from. If I have if the training I do have, uh, it was inspired by the work that I saw Molina doing and others as well um, in those healing justice spaces. 
and then also in my own personal training um, through the presence-based um, technique, just seeing the power of of somatic work for helping us work through moments of change, moments of transition, difficult ideas, the removal of uh, what still be called bell jars, you know, the edge of what we think we know, and then you mm-hmm. lift the bell jar off of the top and then there's a whole expansive landscape. And then at the edge of that, there's also another thing mm-hmm. that gets lift, you know, that process of human development, giving some framework for that, um, incredibly helpful. So. I feel so grateful to have met the people. I feel like this is an Oscar, uh, Oscar award speech. I'm like, I don't want to, I don't, I want to forget anybody, you know, like I don't want to leave anybody off the list, but that's, here comes Kanye. Watch out. Yeah, Um, exactly. Right. Are they going to start playing the music? Uh, and they're going to be like, all right, wrap it up. Um, but I just, again, I feel so grateful to have had all these people both pour into me, whether they were just, producing you know things i read but also even the conversations you referenced those were those were very formative for me as well um talking to michael white talking to reverend seku talking to patrice colors talking to all these people um and getting some some different uh, in the podcast as well um just getting so many of their their wisdom so much of their wisdom into my own experience so and then life right life is one of the greatest deepest teachers you know um going through a divorce, going through uh, the healing that comes from that and seeing the, the, the help that somatics kind of had in mm-hmm. that process for me personally, not like ideologically, but really on a fundamental soul-based, pain-based, trauma-based level, you know, mm. uh, and seeing how, how, how it's helped me, you know, uh, get to where I am. So there, and how it helps me in my parenting, right? Mm-hmm. to notice when I'm being triggered and be able to ground within those spaces of practice as well. So I think that's, that's really where this, this stuff comes in. It's all integrated into, into the, like the fabric of who I am, you know? Um, but it's also a continuing journey that I'm, that I'm on, you know, inevitably and, and, and kind of looking forward to seeing where, where, where it lands. So that's a big answer to your question, but it feels like such a big, answer you know in terms of wanting to name all the folks that have been super um meaningful and also influential for me Mm. no i'm glad you took the time to unravel thank you for sharing your story and just honoring for a minute those layers of mentorship and guidance and how much we stand on the shoulders of giants and how those little moments along the way of that openness in that airport car ride just open up whole new vistas of experience and i don't know that's an indigenous practice uh, in a lot of parts of the world to really take the time to honor the ancestors and the the you know the local geographical elements that they have a sacred connection to before even having some sort of a discussion so there's some kind of like rightness to that like slowing down a little bit and realizing that this isn't really just joe and justin engaging here this is like this is the whole world of experience and influence that comes with us and what we carry so yeah i'm glad we took the time to unravel that yeah thank you for for holding space for that you know because i think sometimes we want to rush past that process because it's like okay let's get to the good stuff or let's get to the let me fast forward you know on the podcast past this part to the to the data you know yeah yeah but i think this the and and again i know i missed people of course but the, (laughs) the idea of lineage i think is so important and uh 
there have been so many people who have brought this back to my attention, how quickly, especially in the academy, we erase lineage. Mm. We put it at the bottom in a footnote, but it becomes yeah. ours, you know, in, the, in this ownership way. Um, and there's other traditions that don't do that, but and especially in the academy, I, I'm I'm aware of, of the tendency to do that. So I, I didn't want to do that today. So Beautiful. And I mean, how are you broadly this last year, just in terms particularly of what's gone on racially? I mean, I have felt tsunamis of energy go through my life experience, my psyche, and I'm in a very privileged position of being not exposed to any kind of daily experience of what's been unfolding, particularly in the States since George Floyd, you know, the Trump presidency, the constant pressure of the uncertainty and the kind of subtle domination energy that's been underneath that, uh, that kind of last four years of, of yeah, that uh, administration. And yeah, how are you doing? How, like, what does it feel like? You talk to me a bit about that. Yeah, it's interesting. It was an interesting thing last summer. I will say that. Um, mm-hmm. I am not the longest standing activist or thinker on this stuff. I, I will definitely admit that. Um, mm-hmm. My foray into this work in this way really began in 2014 with the death of Eric Garner. Um, mm-hmm. And I was reading things, but I didn't really get into this work. And there's, so I want to name that there have been people doing this work for, for years, for generations, right? All that being said, last summer, was interesting in that for so many people, this felt different to them or felt new or felt somehow novel or, you know, um, or, and I think there were so many different factors, right? Many of us globally were at home. Uh, We weren't kind of busy with other things. Typically Mm -hmm. when these things have happened in the past, there was this feeling that no one was paying attention, you know, like, no one cared. No one wanted to stop to, to pay attention. And in this sense, because of the gravity of the situation as it was captured on film, along with us being home, I think people had to, to stare into the abyss. Like their faces were held to, to not be able to look away mm-hmm. and to confront something that has been here and has never left, but has been willfully unseen. Yeah. So there are there are there were multiple parts of me, right? There were parts of me that mm-hmm. were bitter about that. Mm-hmm. There are parts of me that were hurt by that. There are parts of me that were frustrated by that. There are parts of me that were encouraged by that. I think fundamentally my what I felt like I did was you you called it a tsunami and I'm not really like a surfer, but uh I know that there's this practice of going under waves. And what I felt because of everything, COVID, everything that was going on, what I personally did was go under. Mm. I went in that last couple of months. That's really when I started reading Frank Wilderson's book last summer, um, Afro-Pessimism. And um, I had also been getting into Resmaa Menachem's work and really just dove underneath the energy. Because I think for me, there's a sense in which there's going to come a time when the wave crashes. Mm. And there's going to be a need for folks who weren't like trying to swim up it, but have some energy left. <laughs> um, and so yes. that's kind of what I felt called to prepare for was for mm. the next, the moment after, you know, 
yeah the 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 you know people stop filming cities and yeah. you know streets and things like that uh, because that was what I noticed you know back in 2015 and 2014 is that there would be these these big moments and then it's like nothing you know and so how do we catalyze that and use that energy as a catalyst to begin something um, and so August rolled around and people were much more interested in doing this work and so um, but that was exhausting too you know even still, even though I was trying to conserve some of the the personal energy around it. Um, and I, and one of the things, you know, uh, that many people have said that Baldwin said this, Menek Resmith has said this, you know, mm-hmm. um, finding my role in this work, you know, has mm. been a, a, a really important part of it too. Um, Baldwin always talked about how, you know, there was a part of him that was an observer, you know, a witness, um, in, in, in places like Birmingham and things like that. And mm-hmm. um, I believe it was Birmingham. I may have misspoken on that. But in these moments, these pivotal moments, you know, there's people play different roles. And so really, you know, settling into what I feel like my role is, which is what it's becoming, you know, um, and what it's been for a while. But really sitting in, settling into that and not feeling the need to be like doing everything, you know, being a part of every single thing that's happening, every single space. Um, but letting the people who are so well-versed and so adept and so skilled at that do their thing and shine. And if I can support them and however I can, um, and also continue to do my work, um, and see that as valuable and important, even though it looks different. And so, so yeah, it was, it was, it was surreal to see the New York times bestseller have all these books on it that, you know, I had been slowly reading and been shared with me and, you know, mm-hmm. um, things like that. People, I, I, th- I was telling you this before we got on, like people, you know, see my embodiment and they assume that I just come like straight out of the factory with all this knowledge and experience around these issues. And it's like, no, I grew up in this, this body, but I grew up in this society just like a lot of people. And I didn't get a lot of these theories of praxis of understanding. Like I was as befuddled as anybody else when I first started this work. And so, because of other people and because of these resources, I've, I've been able to get somewhat of an understanding of why things are the way they are. I still don't know. I'm not, you know, I'm going to say I have all the answers. Um, but seeing those, that list a lot, like I had a summer school class I was teaching and uh, one of the books that I always taught that never had an issue, you know, since getting, I was getting all these emails from students being like, I can't get this book. I can't get this book, you know? And so that was really cool, you know, um, to be able to see that happen and see people dive in in that way. And so at the same time, I, this summer had this realization, mm-hmm. uh, and you know, historians in the, in your audience may disagree with my, you know, framing of this, but that's okay. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Fourth of July was coming on, which in America is our Independence Day, and you know, there's all this mythology around what happened in that moment. Um, but what we saw last year was so many different organizations, companies, individuals putting up black squares, right? Mm. Um, and this idea of like, well, that's just a virtue signal, kind of begin to come up. And so a lot of the companies I was working with were like, we don't want to just virtue signal; we want to like, you know, really put in the work and things like that. And mm-hmm. it was very well intentioned, right? Um, yeah. But a year out from that, and it's very interesting um, because... Yeah, what are you seeing? Yeah. As I was reflecting on, you know, the, the 4th of July, the Declaration of Independence as a document in the history of, you know, 
human ethics and morality and politics is a pretty it's a big deal it's a pretty big deal what they said you know and they even edited what they said right to make it more palatable for some of the you know southern southern colonists you know um who, who, who were the majority of the power holders at the time but even still what it says on paper is pretty powerful and so i was reflecting like what happened because about in 1789, I think it was around, they had the you know constitutional convention and they all came together and they had won the war and they had the opportunity to build a society based out of the values that they said they wanted to see espoused mm-hmm. and that they were so incensed that they did not have the right to have because of the British, mm. you know, colonial British mm-hmm. government. Right. So they get to this room and they have carte blanche, really. Right to do the thing that they said they were going to do and they didn't do it. Mm. Now the, you know, the breakdown of that, you know, we could go a whole podcast on that in and of itself. But what occurred to me was that it's one thing to say that this is your value and this is personal, right? We can reflect on the personal development part of this. Like we can say, I value rest, but every time somebody asks me to do a project, I just say, yes, without thinking about it. So then I'm always tired. So then the question is, what do you value? Because, you know, you have to ask, we have to ask ourselves the question, like if I value rest, but then I don't rest, do I really value rest? Or is there uh, a shadow value underneath that? Um, and this comes from the work of, I mean, I can't remember, I need to, It's a book called Optimal Outcomes, and I'm blanking on the the name, but it's a great book around uh-huh. finding ways out of uh, difficult situations. Mm. She brings up this idea of shadow values, right? Values that we don't name, but that operate in the background, and that in that that bring us into decision making. So in that moment, like what were the shadow values? Well, we say we we were in you know, a life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, right? Well, when we came down to it, what did we choose? We chose wealth, control, and a kind of keeping of the peace, right? Uh, Maybe compromise, but the the worst possible version of it. Um, Mm -hmm. Conflict avoidance is maybe what we would call it if it was in a personal relationship. Like, I'm not going to say anything to keep the peace, you know, even Mm -hmm. though something needs to be said. So... I think that's what's happening now is that many companies, organizations are in their constitutional convention moment. Mm. They are sitting in boardrooms, on Zoom calls, facing the reality of building a thing after having said their intention to build a thing. Mm. We, we, I mean, you can resonate with this as a person, right? You mm-hmm. say, I'm about, you know, patience, right? And what does life bring you? It brings you a flat tire or it brings you, you know, something in which now you have to, now there's an opportunity to practice this thing that we say we're about. And that's much harder to do in practice than it is to put on an email out to all your customers or on Instagram or, mm. and so I think, this isn't like a a negative framing at all because I Mm -hmm. think 
what we do is we look back in, in in the U.S. We look back, especially on the left, we look back at those, you know, those men, and we wag our fingers at them, as we should. I'm not saying we shouldn't, right? Mm-hmm. But I think in the finger wagon, we miss out on the on on our own spaces in which we have the power to do something in a similar way, but then we abdicate the power or we don't do it because we say, oh, well, that's not, we can't afford that. Or what would this do if we did this? Right. And I, and what I try to bring folks back into the remembering is like, those were just people. Yeah. They had the information. It wasn't like they didn't know about that, you know, setting enslaved folks free. They had all the information they decided to go with the Southern colonists' demands around and keeping keeping slavery as a form of income for the wealth creation of, the, of a new country. Mm-hmm. That was a choice, and it was, a, I would say, a shadow values based choice, right? Yeah. Um, with and we sit here picking and eating the bitter fruits of the trees they planted seven generations ago. Mm. So again, it's very easy to kind of sit here in the moment and be like, oh, blah, 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 you know, like, and we, and again, we should. And yet at the same time, in what ways are we doing the same? Yeah. This repeating cycle, what you're sharing reminds me of just this uncomfortable truth that we so often struggle to live up to our own ideals, our own goals, our own sense of standards. And that seems to be, I mean, I would say that's okay broadly, and that seems to be part of what it is to be human. But the denial of that, the, the difficulty in owning that as it's happening, I'm just looking at myself individually, really trying to change my own behavior. It's really hard for me to look at my vision board and my goals and just blatantly see, because I'm holding myself accountable, how big that gap is and exactly how potent those shadow values are that are actually motivating me are. And I'm right on the edge of my ability to look at all that and be like, oh, and I still have love and respect for myself and I'm going to keep going and not throwing the towel. I'm right on that edge. But that's me, like with lots of space and time and experience and workshops and, you know, not too many external pressures on that process. But if you zoom that out to a cultural and societal level, it's understandable that it's a tall order for us to look at that. And it's easier when other people aren't looking at it because then it's like, oh, okay, they're not, so I won't. So the, the momentum just keeps going around that. And that's a fascinating distinction you draw of like last summer's the bold claims of all these organizations, like we're going to end systemic racism. And it's like a year later, we're starting to look at like, all right, how are you going so far? You know, and that's a new level of discomfort that we kind of need to lean into. But then another level of compassion we need to bring to that to be like, that's okay. I didn't fully live up to my New Year's resolutions yet either, but I'm like, how do we take the next step and that, that that process of that that cycle of kind of self-compassion but it's a balance isn't it because if we don't put enough pressure on then the thing can just melt again for another five years until there's another horrific event that causes another wave of outrage and yeah striking that balance is, is tricky personally and collectively isn't it yeah and i think there's a bit of humility here you know, and what we do know and what we don't know, you know? Yeah. Um, I don't have, like I said, I don't have all the answers. I, I will never, I think some people want me to, right? Clients, you know, in any kind of coaching or training space, people want you to have 
okay, so what do we do? You know? Yes. And I'm less concerned with that. And I'm more concerned with, well, what do you want to do? Yeah. Given that we've now identified that we're sitting at this table in the same way that those people sat at that one. Mm. What kind of decision do we want to make for our descendants? Yeah. There's a story that is kind of like legend, I guess, but um, there's there's a show here in the States called Finding Your Roots, um, mm-hmm. and uh, it's an ancestry show. And there's a story that I, I don't know how true it is, so I apologize if it's if it's if it's false information. But I mm-hmm. think the the story itself, even if it's you know apocryphal, I think is is useful because it's relatable. Uh, a very famous actor found out that his you know ancestors were own slaves and asked yeah. for the entire episode to be scrapped, hmm. you know? Oh. And so there's this interesting kind of like, how do we begin to make decisions in light of the fact you just named like, you know, future generations will be able to see what we did. We'll be able to see what we, what we thought and hear where we were. And so it's not like about pressure, but it is about awareness that, the decisions I make, you know, we, we are planting seeds for the trees that we will never sit under, you know, yeah. that's a, that's a phrase that was introduced to me by, you know, my mentor, Dr. Kiefer Lewis, but that's always sat with me in terms of it is both urgent and long. It's both. Yeah. That's the tension. That's the that. tension. And I think yeah. that's the stamina that's being asked of us. You know, uh, it is like planting anything. It is both immediate in its requirements of water and sustenance and soil and, you know, care. And it's also not instantaneous. And so to frame it as this, like, well, we either go all the way, you know, it's like, we got to, we got to figure out a way to do both. Uh, and so I think that's, that's what has me curious are the people who are, who are who are not letting go of the urgency of it, the immediacy of it, and are also asking the question, what kind of world are we going to build for the people that come after us? That's again where the embodiment piece comes in for me because, I mean, that's a long journey that we're going on, very long, and there's a lot of intense transformation that, requires energy on that journey. And I feel like the only way that I can relax into that is from this sense of shared embodied presence. Like it's almost like a zero point energy source that we can keep drawing on that we just need to keep relaxing into. And I'm relaxing into it again now in this part of the conversation and yeah, kind of just ease into that so that we can almost, I don't know, the feeling I'm getting is like that, urgency and that slowing down like they're like these two different forces of of gravity almost that i can kind of relax into and can hold me up if i can set my poise the right way so that i don't become exhausted yeah they're 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 kind of polarities uh -hmm. and we dance between the poles in a rhythmic way uh and to hold, to hold them in tension. That's how we, somebody brought to me in a somatic space, right? We're talking mm-hmm. about balance. That balance is a, ser- is a series of micro movements. Stillness mm-hmm. is a series of 
micro adjustment. And so it's like, it's both. It's, it's not this either or. And again, I don't want to say that, you know, oh, we can take our time or that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying the reality is, is that it took us a long time to get here. And I'm not saying mm-hmm. it's going to take us as long to get out, but it's not going to be maybe as quick as we think it's going to be. So yeah. do, you, do you have the sustained, if it's a value to you, right, then it will, it will be up in, the, up in the sky as a North Star. And, and there was the star sitting there in like a cave or something like that. It was still, <laughs> it was still in the sky, but it was, yeah. it was this thing that oriented you, whether you were, yeah. you know, got lost, you went through a river, you were on a plane, you were on a mountain, you were in a village, you, wherever you were a city, a town, you could always look up and say, this is where we want to go. This is our, where we're orienting towards. Um, and so I think that's how I think about this work is how do we begin to integrate this from a values-based perspective? Mm. Um, and we, and where we make it a part of the operating system in a way that it's never been before. And I think we have an opportunity to do that on these micro levels at companies and organizations, nonprofits, but also mm-hmm. those can be, as a lot of your work, I think, speaks to these practice spaces in which we figure out how to do them on a larger level, you know, in larger spaces. Yeah. So I want to pivot to that a little bit. Um, I want to I want to ask you, I, I mean, you've kind of been implicitly answering this question throughout our whole conversation, but broadly, we had this beautiful community story going together, this collective called Doc Rack, which was like a couple of hundred people who'd really woven their lives together over six or seven years. And uh, it was a really profound thing, emotionally, physically, spiritually even. And we saw it just tear itself apart in such a quick, I mean, many of us wish there was a documentary made about it because for me, it was a lived experience of how a group of really well-meaning people that share very similar values on a lot of levels have a lot of experience uh, being kind and giving and creative together in person, just quickly imploded and uh, disintegrated once these larger historical energies came through and uh, essentially uh, ideas of social justice started to get debated and argued about, um, it tore the community apart. So I've seen firsthand how this is like, how shit can get real and how it can warp even the most beautiful things that I thought would be impervious to that kind of energy. So I'm kind of humbled by that because I was in the center of that and I didn't, I didn't save the day. I didn't like know how to hold the space. I mean, arguably I, I might've made things worse. I probably did in lots of different ways, even though I was trying my best. And so then, you know, I've done a lot of anti-racism reading and training since then. I've done some, I've done a course in the history and I'm really, really uh, glad to have done that and to have had that experience of just being completely overwhelmed by the amount of knowledge and events that I just had no idea about, despite being fairly well-read and just kind of just shocked at, at p- putting the whole piece together and really getting that idea that, you know, racism is 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 not just like uh, kind of sort of treating other races with bias or unfairly. It's like this con- construct. It's this historical story that points in one direction from a power source to repressed minorities. And it's like, okay, 
I understand that and I'm really grateful for that. But I still feel a little bit ill-equipped in case it were to happen again, you know, and I kind of want to talk to you and because I'm going to create more community again and I imagine I'll, I'll face this again. And broadly, what have you learned? Like, what have you seen? What have you seen in the groups of people? What, what's been working? What hasn't been working? Um, yeah. What have you found out are the, are the, are the surest paths towards deeper understanding and openness when it comes to issues of social justice? All right. I'm going to do that annoying thing. I'm going to ask you, as you've done all this, uh-huh. what would you do differently in the construction of the community from the outset? If you were mm-hmm. at the table now with what you know, mm-hmm. knowing what you know about how what happened last time played out, what would uh-huh. you mm-hmm. what would you do differently? If if that's okay I to ask. It's perfectly okay to ask. I would have um I would have had discussions about race before we were in a pressure cooker environment. Um we talked about broadly as a group, lots of interesting ideas, but I didn't go there because I didn't feel equipped. I felt like I'm not the guy to hold all the energy around this um, because I'm white and I'm from Australia and I don't understand a lot of the context of what's going on. But that was really, yeah, in hindsight, that isn't something I'd do again. I, up front, get it going, recognize that wherever I'm at, wherever we're at is okay if we do it with with a sense of openness and love and that will set the tone for this isn't some taboo subject that when it comes up is like <gasps> at each other's throats so that that's probably the, the the first thing to encourage that discussion within a community from the get-go to weave that into its dna from the very beginning um and based on what you're sharing with me i would pair that with the embodiment part because a lot of these discussions were happening through Facebook because we were spread all over the world. And that just, as you can imagine, really put fuel to the fire. And so to have that somatic experience first, to have that kind of training and capability built up so that uh, it can almost be pleasurable to hold, hey, how much of this can we hold together? And what can we, what edge can we get to, to kind of look at it like a kind of yogic or martial arts practice in terms of, in terms of that. So there are two things that spring to mind. I think, yeah, I, I resonate so much with, with both of those. I think making things explicit is a big part of it. Um, mm-hmm. And I think recognizing both the roles we play in our own lives, but also in the historical narrative, I think is a big part of it too. Mm-hmm. I think knowing what triggers us individually whatever your embodiment is, is a big part of it. And having a space that's not the space you're using to talk about it, to talk about it Mm. is a big one. Mm -hmm. And there are people who are doing this work and who have, you know, been thinking about this for again, a lot longer than I have. Mm -hmm. And I will also say that in the history of talking about this, we're still relatively infants hmm. compared to the amount of time we were doing it the other way. Yes. <laughs> so the fact that there's some wobbly knees, some tripping, some falling, I think sometimes when we get into these situations, we, we kind of 
second arrow ourselves as Tara Brock talks about, you know, like mm. the first pain happens, right? The painful interaction, but then we second arrow ourselves about what it means about our ability to be together as a community or as individuals, mm. or I'm a bad person. Da, da, da. And some of this is like, whose job was it to teach you these things? And you just, if you ask that question, it goes all the way up past where you could even have any possible. So we could get into that conversation, but the question becomes this being so now what, you know, Mm. This being the case, now that we can acknowledge that this is, we're not in denial about what's happened and our, our ancestors' roles in it, we're going to just, you know, just be like, this is, it is what it is, not in a dismissive way, but in an acceptance of reality. I often talk about this as like, this is the diagnosis, you know? The doctor can call with a diagnosis and you can say, no, I don't believe, you know, you can get a second opinion, da, da, da. <laughs> but there comes a point in time where you can choose to believe the diagnosis and then begin the treatment plan of whatever kind, or you can continue to say like, no, I don't believe it. And I think many people finally got to the moment where they're like, okay, this is an issue. And so this idea of a collective treatment plan, obviously people have been thinking about it for many years on a national level in this country. We have never fully enacted it. You know, like we've never fully, we don't know what that looks like. Hmm. As well, Lady Amarisha says, like all organizing is science fiction. The yeah, the the thing that we are trying to do maybe is science fiction. Like we haven't yet seen it brought into the world, and yet at the same time, in the seventeen fifties, if you had told someone that there's going to be this place that looks like the place that develops here. You know, and for all its ills and bad, you know, I'm not saying it's perfect, but I'm just saying the idea of something that doesn't exist existing, right? Yes. Slavery in this country is supposed to last for a thousand years. Yeah. It was never supposed to end. We often look Mm. at slavery through the lens of emancipation as being like, well, there was a clock running on it. There was no clock. Like it was supposed Mm. to be around forever. There are people who were born lived and died never knowing if their ancestors would know anything different and yet through a whole host of different reasons right things change and so i think we can acknowledge both the in the momentness of this right and the struggle mm-hmm. right and the difficulty of this and also acknowledge that some of the stuff we're doing is stuff we don't know if it will work yeah. and so there's a trial and error aspect to this so how do we give ourselves the space to experiment, to try, while also holding that there is urgency. And to learn and to share together. And so if you're open to it, I want to talk about a few more of the dynamics that I saw unfold in this story because they're just so fascinating to me. Like this thing that I've had happen a few times where you get into a discussion and it happened in this group or even in smaller groups in that community when we were talking about uh, issues of identity. This this, you must have seen this happen so many times when suddenly someone speaking takes on an archetypal role of either a whole race or a whole repressed minority. And by definition, another person might take on the uh, just to hold space for them. And without realizing what's going on here is like thousands of years of civilizational trauma and narrative is being channeled through this one being and their limited ideas and philosophy and they don't know what that feeling is and 
it almost brings like a shamanic quality to this where I'm like, this needs to be done with like a group of people around and like really slowly. And another thing that I'm realizing as we're talking about is that group and individual piece is critical. Like if we're going to do this, I think we need to do this properly because in so many of these anti-racism groups and, and educations I've been getting, I've been seeing people on very different levels and there's a group experience happening, but there's also lots being missed out on because people aren't able to process where they're at in that moment. So it seems like it needs like a group of facilitators with them that can take each person away at an individual moment. And I'm seeing how intricate and how much time and energy and resources needs to be invested to do this properly, or maybe it's not worth doing type thing, you know, and it's not like just like slap in a diversity trainer to fix our organization. It's like not bring a whole team to work with us for a period of time. And I'm seeing that part of it being really crucial. And then the other part that I want to speak to, which is a little edgier for me, is seeing the um, what for me weren't ideal responses to the diagnosis landing. So on one side, perhaps seeing that like, I want to pretend this isn't happening and uh, I want to stay within my reality filter and keep going on. And for me, that position is like, hey, that's not tenable. We've seen that where that leads us, that doesn't work. The onus is on us to like step into this now. That's one part of it. But then the other side is the people that put this, this, all right, this is really interesting. You have a religious background. So you, you, you must be familiar with the structures of this kind of uh, fundamentalist religious quality that mm -hmm. arose. Mm -hmm. And I can't deny that I witnessed this to some degree in our community of a kind of new priest class that were kind of righteous, pointing a new kind of uh, philosophy at people and you either were sinning or you weren't and you could be redeemed by that kind of whole process. And I don't blame any individuals for that, but I am just fascinated by seeing that that whole religious uh, symbology, those archetypes, they're just sitting within us. And I could see how we will recreate that in different situations. And to be human is to be religious, which leads me down some other routes of like, what are we missing? Those of us that are uh, not in a religion, like there's huge parts of our psyche that just aren't being um, touched on and engaged with. And, and that, that changed my view on that. So, I mean, I opened a lot of things there, but like they're just these really rich human experiences that I've seen come out of this uh, experience. And I'd, I'd love to get your thoughts on any of, any of that. Yeah. Um, so remind me of the first one real quick. The first one was like when you take on something bigger than you and you yes. might not realize it's happening and it's healing. But when it's happening to you, it's hard to see or experience and it kind of needs to be held with you and honored almost and like allowed the, the yelling, the rage, the trauma, the understanding, like, yeah, like we're somehow channeling older stories that need to be expressed that have never had words. And yeah, that's, that's a thing, right? Yeah. So that the one you mentioned, the, the you know, the experience of having thousands of years being channeled through your face, you know, uh -huh. <laughs> that is what I was referring to. And I think that's what Resma Manicum is referring to by charge. Uh huh. 
Now, exactly. charge might feel like, oh, it's like a, a little, you know, a little snap, you know? But no, we're not talking about this. We're talking about a surge, like a mm-hmm. power surge, like the kind of power surge that, you know, shuts all the lights off. Yeah. Somatically in your nervous system. Mm-hmm. Because we have to also recognize that part of that thousand year history, depending on your embodiment, but specifically if you are a white bodied person, as Rasmus' words are, you know, is to not, is to shut that down. To shut that, shut it down, dissociate. Mm -hmm. I think there's in this country specifically, but, uh, you know, I think for white folks specifically, this is a thing I've seen is the way dissociation helps Mm -hmm. you because it's helpful, right? Dissociation is helpful because you could sit in a, in a hot room in Philadelphia talking about life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, how to build a country around that while you have enslaved people right outside tending to the horses Mm -hmm. you just separate you know from your body from the empathic parts of yourself and so you're not just feeling your own individual lifetime's worth of you know oh no all the things i didn't know all the things i didn't see you're also channeling in my belief all this stuff from a long time ago of people who also suppressed and also dissociated so when that when you when you begin to uncover that, mm. you are releasing an enormous amount of energy into your system. Period. Mm-hmm. Same thing if you've been in a historically oppressed position. Mm-hmm. You have been suppressing as well, dissociating from the pain and the trauma of being othered and non-human and you know, in the society that you exist in. And so when you see another person having their experience, you know what I'm saying? It brings up that. So it's like when we, I, I like what you said is like, maybe we shouldn't just hire a diversity trainer again. That's what I do. So, but <laughs> I'll say that, but there's a sense in which I, I really encourage companies and organizations and individuals to take it seriously. Yeah. It's not this like side dish at the dinner. It's mm. the table. Yeah. And I think we want to treat it like a side dish, like, oh, like, let me just, you know, make sure we get, you know, this percentage that matches the population of the people. No, that's not that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about culture, as, as Resma said, like signs, symbols, rituals. Right. We're talking about big stuff. So we're again, historically, we're just now getting into it on this body based body level. So mm-hmm. as Joy DeGruy says, you know. If it feels like a lot, it's because it's a lot, you know? And so just naming that, I think, as we begin these journeys, now not to say that that means we shouldn't do it, obviously, um, but we, we are embarking on pretty, I, I would say, significant journeys, right? Um, ones that generations before, for various reasons, didn't do to the extent that I think what we're trying to do. And so just holding some space for that. Mm, Yeah, go ahead. Well, this is right on the edge of my thinking. I I feel very enlivened by this. I also feel some of that charge coming in a little bit. And I recognize how much of a desire I have to to be with a group of us for a week that can just hold each other in that charge in all the different ways and how potent and profound that would be. And in fact, that's something I, I will 
do and facilitate. I, I look forward to, to that. So that's coming through. But just, I feel like for me, a lot of my work and my writing and my thinking, it largely could be kind of categorized as utopian because it's kind of like that shift for me of recognizing the truth of what's happened historically, individually, even just within our own families, even within families where you haven't been you know, physically or sexually abused, but just emotionally maybe not held in the ways that you might need because your parents weren't either and how long that goes back. And when I start to own that, then when I look at my neighbor with those eyes, that can bring a level of that experience to them. It's kind of like, it's like we take the lid off something. And for me, this is like post-civilization. Like I feel we need a new word for what existing will be like. Whole new familial community organizational structures to be able to hold the truth of having our hearts broken open by the amount of grief and trauma and suffering that is, you know, woven into so many of our cells. And it, it, it's not all or nothing because it's going to happen gradually, but it feels a bit like that to me because it's like I'm either in that reality or I'm part of the farce. I'm part of the like put on a happy face and pretend that that stuff hasn't happened. And I get that because I'm looking at that in myself. I realize that's what I've done about my whole childhood. So I'm like, okay, <laughs> like I'm really profoundly skilled at that we all are we've had to be to survive because if you show too much too early you don't fit in and you you you, you're uh you're left out and and that's death and that's fear and that's alienation so it feels to me like a wave that i want to build or be part of that's already happening a movement Uh, I, i imagine holding hands with you and many other people and and, and being firm and steady in our presence and embodiment, but with such a kindness and such a patience of exactly where everyone is at. And it starts to sound a little bit kumbaya, but I'm really like, that's where I feel we need to go, you know? And you're doing it in such a fascinating way. You're doing it through this corporate process i mean i want to talk to you for hours about the subtleties of what that must be like you put on a suit you're like a or maybe not but like a a kind of slightly save the day guy but then also you know you're you're a black guy coming in to lead these really subtle workshops and all the projections that must come onto you and all the charge you must feel in certain moments and how much of your own practice you must have to bring into that to to like see what's yours and what's in the field and that fascinates me justin that it it yeah. Yeah. There's so much to go on. I, I will name a connection maybe that I saw, you know, I think as you were mm-hmm. speaking, there was this evangelical <laughs> Pentecostal the cult en- leader in me. energy to you. Right. And it's not about, uh-huh. it's not, it's about the excitement of seeing things uh, on, on a level. Right. And seeing mm-hmm. a new, a new way of doing things. Mm-hmm. I think also paired with urgency. Right. And so I think to go back to your second point about the dynamic that you saw, right. Mm -hmm. That I think that plays into, I don't know the individuals, you know, at all in their stories or who they were or their embodiments or anything. Right. But I can only imagine that I've been a part of communities that I thought were going to be the communities that could hold me that ended up not being that way. And how upset that made me, how angry that made me Mm. and how, 
fundamentalist that made me about the way I felt they should be. Hmm. And my deep, deep desire to call them into accountability. Hmm. Not just because of hurting folks, but because of the way they disappointed me in my expectation of what I thought they were going to do for me. Yeah. Now, I'm not sure if that resonates for anybody that experienced that in the group that you're talking about. I'm just speaking for my own, you know? And so again, we're, this is science fiction. Yeah. You know, we collectively are at the edges of what we know, Mm -hmm. you know? And I think that's part of this process is how do we continue to move forward? Mm. Oftentimes I, when I'm talking to specifically uh, white-bodied executives, mm. ma- male executives, I say, you know, because we may be talking in a coaching situation about this, this, that, and the third. And, I, and one thing I say is like, when people see you, or I'll just use you, Joe, when people see you, right, mm. they're having an experience of you that is not always about you. You look like somebody who did something to them. Hmm. And a, a, a kind of rational trauma response is to assume that because you look like the person that did the thing, that you're going to do a very similar thing. So I'm going to prepare myself hmm. in order to protect myself, right? And so I tell people all the time in general, like, you got to... If, if this is something that you are, that you care about, that you want to be, you know, you want to see yourself grow in to make it explicit so that you can be in, in self-accountability around it, but also so that people can know this is what I'm attempting to do. And so that when I'm not, I can be called in, mm. you know, I can be called in around, Hey, like I noticed in the meeting yesterday, like you know, you said that you wanted to have this as a value and yet this is what I experienced of you. Hmm. And that gives you an opportunity as an individual, as a part of a collective, right? To say, Ooh, you know what? You're totally right. I totally interrupted. I totally took up all the space. Can I tell a story? Please. So I was doing this. I was a participant in a cohort of educators uh, we were doing this work. We were all the woke, woke, woke folks, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and about 16 of us. And we were, this is a, a multi-month meeting. So once a month, like a community of practice is what it technically was. And so we were meeting mm-hmm. together to talk about how do we bring this into education, uh, this equity work. And when, And I don't say this because it's about me, but I just happened to be the person that did this, right? I noticed in mm-hmm. my own self an awareness, almost like I was floating above the room, that there were about four or five men in the room um, mm-hmm. and like 14 women. And the men were doing all the talking. So I just became aware of this in my own body. And I was participating in it fully. I was equally a part of it. You know, it wasn't like I was somehow better. Or, you know, I was a part of it. But in this moment of recognition and the dynamic of the group and in myself, I was like, oh shit. I can't not now, I can't not know what I just realized, right? And we've all had these moments of recognition in a group, right? And this is the power of group space. And so 
I knew the facilitator. Uh, it was actually my mentor. She was doing it. And I just was like, I timidly raised my hand and I said, I just want to name that like I'm a part of this, but what here is what I'm seeing, right? And my, my you know, my, my mentor, the facilitator, the expert facilitator that she is, stopped the meeting. We had an agenda, something to get to, a topic to discuss. Mm-hmm. That was in line with what mm-hmm. we were talking about. She'd stopped it. And we checked in with every single person. We went around the circle. How are you feeling? Well, I'm feeling, right? Some people were like, I'm not talking because I don't want to talk. And other people were like, I am so glad you brought this up. Every single meeting I'm in, this always, right? We held space for everybody's individual response. And we just shared. And at the end of it, I remember her saying, now that we've noticed this dynamic, it actually puts us in a position of choice because now we get to choose. Is this who we want to be? Mm. We can choose that. Yes, it is who we want to be. We want to continue this dynamic. And, uh, but she's like, it also makes sense that this dynamic is here because it's everywhere else. Yeah. It's the water we swim in. So the fact that the dynamic being here is not the surprising part, right? What will be the potential for being the surprising part? is what we do now that we've noticed that this dynamic is here. Yeah. And so we didn't really come to any conclusion, right? And this is why I'm such a big fan of both the coaching space and communities of practice as models for this work over Mm -hmm. just, you know, kind of like what Paulo Freire calls like just banking information. That's good. I think we do need some, some updates. We just need to know some facts that we didn't get taught. Right. But in terms of how do we do differently in the, how do we be, differently not just do but be this work as a way of being in the world uh you know it was a great example so this is so that was the so we all went out in the parking lot and did like the sitcom end high five and it froze you know (laughs) we did it so the story the story continues right a month later we come back Uh uh-huh guess what happens same thing the same thing happened and i had this out-of-body experience and i was like oh no it was like you know <laughs> i was like oh no it's happening again uh-huh. and i said oh, i'm really i oh, i hate to do this i'm doing it i'm part of it too again oh. but it's happening and so we did it again mm-hmm. and i always share that story just to speak to the genius of my mentor in that she was willing to put aside the agenda She's willing to put aside the plans for the meeting, the intentions for the meeting, and be present and responsive to the dynamic that was showing up in the space. Because what typically happens in a community of practice is that we come to the community of practice as volunteers, typically, wanting to work on this stuff, wanting to be a part of it. But it's typically, not always, but some for some folks, it's about doing it for the people out there. How do I go Mm. out there and deal with those people who are the problem? Yeah. And what these spaces do when they are when we construct them in this way is that they bring up the ways in which the call is coming from inside the house to use a scream reference. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? And we've had that internal individual experience, mm. right? I had that experience as a man in that situation, right? But also in group dynamics, right? It's like we want to do this stuff in the community and I'm like, is your house in order? And not that we have to yeah. be perfect, but how do we begin to have you know, an acknowledgement of that call, the calls coming from inside the house. So, so, so often mm. that we don't even realize that that's happening. Beautiful. I love that story. I, 
again, I'm drawn to this fascinating uh, nexus of, of where your work is at because for me, the, the corporate world is so much a reflection, a crystallization of our obsession with doing. Our whole civilization over the last five or 6,000 years has been an arrowhead towards you know, effective, efficient output at the expense of being, repressing those elements of being. And I feel like what's happening right now with all sorts of social justice issues, and broadly beyond that with mindfulness as well, is kind of like, how do we bring that being in touch with that doing? And part of me is like, they're not going to go together. I mean, sure, there's elements. It's a beautiful process that can and should happen from within the system as well as outside of it, I feel. But broadly, that might be the, you know, some alchemy that occurs from that of the whole thing just kind of transforms from that point because they're just so fundamentally opposed to each other. And it feels like the force that is pushing for that being is it's, it's not going anywhere with that. That is a beautiful, slow stepping, potent, ever growing energy against this kind of arrowhead. And yeah, it's quite dramatic, you know, again, I guess I'm getting a little bit kind of archetypal, but I, I, I see you like right on the, where those two things are meeting and the sense I'm getting from, from you and how you hold yourself and how you're holding me is that that's, that's such potent and incredible work you're doing. And I guess I just want to honor you in this moment and send you some love and respect. And uh, again, doing this podcast for me, I draw so much hope and optimism out of these experiences and these shared spaces that we hold together. So I'm not, if you have a little bit more time, there's a couple of extra things I wanted to touch on before we wrap up. Does that, how does that sound to you? Yeah, that sounds good. Okay. Um, cool. Cause I'm enjoying this discussion. Yeah. Same here. I was like, we need another hour. What do we, yeah, yeah. <laughs> definitely. So I, I want to talk about, um, Octavia Butler and I want to talk a bit about sci-fi. I want to talk a little bit about Adrian Marie Brown and Ursula Le Guin. So I'm just throwing it all out there. Yep. Um, I mean, firstly, here's a little interesting factoid, like what the hell Octavia Butler wrote this book in 1998 called the parable of talents. So she's a science fiction writer from the States. She died, I think, 2006. Like 10 years ago now. 2006, yeah. yeah. Um, uh-huh. And she's incredible. And she's just getting discovered more broadly. There's a huge resurgence of interest in her work. Yeah. And she predicted things in such an eerie and uncanny way. She predicted there would be an outsider running for president who was kind of dog whistling racism with the slogan, make America great again. Mm -hmm. And it's like, whoa, like that's pretty trippy. That's pretty out there. How on it she was, how prescient that was. And I, um, I want to hear a little bit about your relationship with Octavia Butler. Maybe you can give us a sense of her magic and, and what it is about her work that's, that's lit you up and other, other activists and thinkers in the scene. Yeah, that's a big question. And uh, to be honest, to be complete, I feel humbled to even be talking about it because I don't feel completely qualified to speak to the majestic nature of her work mm. in the fullness that I wish I could. That being said, I came, to, I came, I really came into knowledge of her work through Adrienne Marie Brown and Willie Day Marisha's Octavia's Brood, and then also uh, Adrienne Marie Brown's Emergent Strategy. But I first read Kindred which is uh, a, 
a harrowing tale. Uh, and I started teaching that and just getting so many insights around enslavement. And if you haven't read the book, you know, it's, it's a, it's a horror story. It's, it's, yeah. it really is. Um, and I, don't, I think it's sci-fi, but it's also horror. Um, the premise is that a woman in a black woman living in LA in the 1970s gets sucked back into the, the 1820s without any control mm. into Maryland and onto a plantation. So she goes from being a, a relatively, you know, relatively to the time she's getting sucked into free person into this object body, right? A, a body yeah. that's not a person. It's not a subject. It's an object um, like a, like a mirror, you know, or a rake, you know? Mm-hmm. And so it's just the trauma of dealing with that. And it's, it's really powerful. That, that was where I first came upon her work. And so then when I found Adrian's readings of that, it was just, it just really shook me. But Parable of the Sower is the one that Parable of the Talents is also is second to that, is second in uh-huh. that series. Um, and there's a third unwritten book that she never finished. Um, yeah, one, one of the things I've, I mean, and I forgive me if I'm wrong to everyone listening, but one of the things I, I think I remember reading is that when people ask her about what she predicted, she basically is like, I just read the newspaper and this predicted if this all continued as it is, where are we going to end up? Yeah. And then the book Parable of the Sower is set, I believe, in 2024. Mm. So it's a little bit off in terms of like it's predict, but it's and some of the things are similar, but some of the things are very are much worse. Yeah. So it's not a one to one, but the, the Make America Great Again, I think, is very prescient. Right. But also this speaks back to what we were talking about earlier about a the ahistoricism. Right the inability for us to make connections between the present and the past, because that's literally what she did was make a connection between her current present and what a future would be if we didn't do anything to change the trajectory of what we were doing. Mm. And to to drill that home a little bit, I dug a little deeper that was used by Clinton and Reagan. So that's that a historicity piece again of like, the writing was on the wall. If we knew, if we'd seen what had happened, it's no surprise. It's going to come back again, even more intense. And we're going to be surprised and shocked when it does. Why? That's, that's the rhythm that we're on unless we change things. So that's, that's a pretty interesting piece. And and I think again, to step into that mode of like, that's how we are as humans too. Mm. How many times we find ourselves in situations in which we're like, I've been here 15 times before, whether it's in love or in jobs or what have you. And often it's because of the habit mind, right? It's yeah. the bell jar. It's whatever these limited, you know, perceptions that we have. The world. and so we need people to help us lift those, so that we can see something more. And the main character in the book, Olamina, is one of those people who's attempting to take in everything that she's seeing and come up with a new way of being in the world. And she comes up with this religion um, in which, you know, she says that God has changed, that God's not a person, but God is the, is the fact that things change. Uh, and so the sooner we accept that, the less resistance we have to things changing and we can work with change as opposed to fighting it. And so that, that quote, I got it from the, the interview you did with uh, Adrian Marie who tattooed it on her arm. I think, yes. what is it? All that you touch, you change. You change. All, All that, that you change, change changes, changes you. you. Yeah. The only, only lasting truth, truth is change. change. And that's God is change. God is change. And that's that's at the center of the book, right? And so yeah. 
it's a it's a it's a really interesting response to chaos hmm. because the book is so much grounded in the world is falling apart ecologically, politically, socially, racially, economically. So then how do we respond to that? And so it's so fascinating. I was actually teaching that in March of 2020. Uh, uh-huh. And so it was so strange to see, to be teaching this apocalyptic book in the <laughs> midst of a, in, 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 in the closest thing trippy. to an apocalypse I've ever experienced, you know? Um, and so that particularly March, cause that really was apocalypse month. It That's was like supermarket runs, like yes. what's going on, you know, the shutdown, like my students went from being in class to being at home while we were reading that book. Whoa. You know? And so again, the prescience of it, I think is, uh, is pretty, pretty remarkable. And at the same time, is it? Yeah. And that's, the, and that's the troubling piece, you know? Um, yeah. And so, but yeah, go ahead. Well, this comes up against this huge overarching theme, which for me is at the center of everything, which is learning how to deal, deal is maybe the wrong word, integrate, understand, harmonize with our subconscious, our unconscious mind, the forces that are driving us that we might not be aware of. Because what I'm understanding the human psyche to be, the conscious mind is editing and keeping a reality that we can deal with, that we feel we can deal with. So these kind of like these blinkers are on. To be a human is to be somewhat deluded as to what we really are. And I'm starting to look at people and I'm thinking that actually their subconscious is who I'm dealing with, not what they're presenting to me, but the whole thing. And it's this it goes across health, psychology, business, everything. And it's it's blowing my mind. I can't quite hold it all. I'm trying to just do it with myself first. But how do we, yeah, how, how do we uncover? I mean, first, I think, I think we just need to talk about it more. I feel a bit like crazy that I'm the only one that's really super fascinated in that process in my immediate circle right now because it feels like, what else is there to do? All of our issues are coming from that inability to be with what is. And it's all, I, the way I frame things is civilization is really a distraction mechanism to just deal with the amount of trauma that we're holding. And then on the micro level, our lives and our addictions and our inclinations. And you know what? Even our relationship to narrative, I'm finding. This is something mm. that I've just been delving into, that I use narrative to disassociate and escape. I will read sci-fi every night. I'll have comic books going, computer games. I'm like, what am I so constantly wanting to get away from? And that 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 question is is always in the air. And I I, I don't want it to feel like a scary question of like <gasps> the unseen things. I want it just to like the air of like, huh. Yeah, that. Oh, okay. Well, well, let me sit in that with my friends and let me hear what Justin feels about that and let me celebrate that as an inquiry of, of moving through the world, you know? Yeah, I want to hold space for that question. You know, what am I avoiding? It's an age old, it's a thousands year old question that predates this country, your country. You know, like it's like, it's a very old human question. Yeah. I think I'll draw back on the wisdom again of Adrian that Adrian has brought to me of Grace Lee Boggs, who was her mentor, um, mm-hmm. whose quote that Adrian quotes a lot is transform yourself to transform the world. 
Mm. Transform yourself to transform the world. Transform yourself mm. to transform the world. And I think mm. for me, I find my initial response to anything that I see as being a problematic thing is to say, how do I change them? Mm-hmm. Right. And I think that was the impetus last summer for many people. Mm-hmm. I'm good. It's those people out there that are yeah. the problem. Right. And I think one of the most harrowing parts of this work is when you realize is when I realize <laughs> even as a person who does this work, that the call is coming from inside the house. Yeah. Right. Mm. That I play a role. I have played a role in certain things. Right. And so uh, Dr. Veronica Crawford Lewis uses a system of change theory that she brought to me that is begins intrapersonal internally, then goes interpersonal, then is kind of, circulated by the cultural understanding of like, okay, who, you know, who's, what are the histories and the things that, you know, influence uh, who we are and what, and how we are and how our organizations are run. Right. Um, And then it gets institutional policies, systems, Mm. structures, senates, you know, these, you know, these larger things. Oftentimes when I'm called in, you can probably guess, where do people want me to start? In this, I guess, with putting out the immediate fires, like which tend to pick, like, give us some policies, mm, yeah, right, yeah, give me the, give me the, yeah, I get you, give me the rubric for hiring, yeah, right. And what we like to say is, like, change if you want, if you want change, then it always begins first within us. And so, what I always suggest to folks is when they're the only person are kind of frustrated with where things are. I'm like, go through the process. Hmm. Go through the process for yourself so that you can become a guide for people who have a similar experience, a similar embodiment when they Hmm. become ready to go through it because you were not always this way either. I was not always this way. It took somebody coming to me and saying, here's another way. And me being more or less in a space to accept it, but probably not really, but deciding to take a risk and doing it. You know, like, yeah, I'm saying it wasn't this clean process. And so how do we both hold again, the urgency of the moment and the necessity for action now, and also, you know, channel some of that energy to do the work inside of us to learn about ourselves and the way in which this work has metastasized itself in us. Yeah. So that we begin getting to exercise that so that when people begin to interpersonal interactions, we show up in a different way, but also we have an experience that gives us some information in terms of how these things can be worked through to begin with. And this for me, again, is a bigger story. I love what you just shared there and, and that wisdom of the, the, the transformation inside because I feel like what we're just starting to really connect together is the lineage of activism, which goes back hundreds, if not thousands of years, with 
the felt understanding of the somatic interchange and the psychological insights that have started to arise over the last few hundred years, but then also the ancient indigenous, shamanic, ancestral wisdom that's already been there around that and kind of piecing those two things together because, you know, I was a clueless 20-year-old climate change activist that had no idea about my sympathetic nervous system. So I've lived that in my own little lifetime. I've watched it happen. And bringing those two things together is this broader process. This it's, It seems kind of so obvious and evident when I look at it, but it's like, you know, be the change you wish to see in the world. It's like that lands in a whole new way when you can start to have space to really hold all of it. And you can do this really profound inner work. And I'm having another kind of like visionary moment here of just looking forward to that moment when that is honored and seen as as important as running the NGO is the person that is quietly doing that work on on the inside they're just that 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 bias we have towards the external and the visible and the materialistic and that lack of value that we place on the internal yin transformation that uh for me adrian marie brown is like this just perfect Mm -hmm. synthesis of this of what she talks about and how she shows up and what her message is and um yeah, I feel like some excitement around that and some joy that that's emerging and bubbling up in our time and that we get to be part of that. Yeah, I think the road inward is the hardest road to, on some extent, you know? And I think that to, to, to begin that journey, I think, is difficult, but also collectively. And one of the things I want to bring into the space that Resma always talks about is like, mm-hmm. he's like white bodied people who are for this work, get together on your own without us and begin to figure out what all this stuff means for you collectively. Mm. What does it look like to build culture around these things? I can't yes. tell you what that looks like, right? He always brings up the Ku Klux Klan here in the States, the, the racist terrorist organization that existed, mm-hmm. you know, um, for arguably, has existed for over 100 years. Um, mm. And how they have rites of passage, symbols, mm. flags, uniforms, rules of, of, of procedure. You know, they have all these, these, these rituals, this culture, if you if you and dragons and yes, grand titles hawk, right yeah just symbolic symbolism but all that stuff is unifying right it's passed down yeah. so what what does it look like to build an anti-racist white embodied culture yeah i'm not saying we need something dogmatic i'm not saying that we need a religion i'm not that's not what i'm asking i'm asking what does it look like for it not to be centered around i just don't want bipoc people to be mad at me yes fuck it's so right do you know what i'm saying like what is it yeah what do you like to put to be very frank like what the fuck do you want joe like yeah. not because uh-huh. i'm gonna be you know cancel culturing you but sure. in terms of your own value system mm. what kind of world and i'm saying not just to you but i'm saying you you're right here mm. right what kind of mm-hmm. world do you want to be a part of building in an active way 
right? And this is the Ursula K. Le Guin, you know, the ones who walked away from Omelas moment, right? Uh-huh. In that I this is a story I use in trainings as well. I have I have our trainings re- I have people in our trainings read that story. Because I and this is brought to me by my colleague um Brett Kaufman. Um the story he brought this to me because in that story, you know, a group of you know, the, you know this I'm this the story is like there's this utopic city, right? And it's not perfect. It's just mm-hmm. really great. Like, um, and it just has all these great things, but it's all built on this premise that if, that there's a person, a, a child underneath in a basement in a broom closet underneath the city that cannot be engaged with, that cannot be mm-hmm. talked to. And every year when you turn around 13, your family takes you down and you see this child. Mm. And you you witness it, and then they walk away, and some people stay, and some people leave. Mm-hmm. Some people are able to be like, well, if we take away the the deal that the city was built upon is that if we do if we treat this child with love and kindness, this then we can't have our city, mm. right? And some people are like, well, city's pretty good, and mm. relatively speaking, like more people are happy than this one kid, so. You know, it's like you got to pay to play, you know, like that's that's some people's response. And other people cannot live with the cognitive dissonance that it would require to live in a city that good while this is happening to this child and they leave the city. Yeah. And those are the ones who walk away. And what I always tell clients and groups specifically is that perhaps this is a group of people meeting in some upper room somewhere in the city having just gone to see this thing, strategizing what it would look like to collectively leave the city. Wow, that's powerful. And all the like risks and fear and excitement and adventure and courage and terror that that moment would have. Because you're talking about leaving everything you know. You're talking about going into the wilderness, so to speak. Where there's no tram, there's no grocery store, there's no, there's not, there's not these. So what do you have to do? You have to use your instincts. You got to build, you know, together. You got to. And Parable of the Talents has a similar Parable of the Solar Parable of the Talents has a similar storyline of like when you leave these collective spaces and you're on the the road, or so to speak. Uh-huh. How do you build the thing you want to see come into the world? And so. Um, that is a story I use a lot, the, one, the ones who walked away from Omelas, as a kind of example of the choice moment that we all get to have around this stuff. I love that. And I want to share my own little experience of that, of like, you know, being in Southeast Asia, being in this like different experience, being able to create. I felt like we were, we were that. We'd walked away to some degree. Everyone that was there that wasn't Thai, it was a pretty small group of locals, admittedly, were had walked away to some degree, but we only walked so far before the stories we were carrying came back in. So that's like my, I've been initiated in that now. Like I've seen that and I've understood that and I feel ready to hold that the right way. Um, And yeah, really humbled by, by how, how, how slowly we kind of have to take those processes. But I've, one thing I want to share with you just out of 
passion and interest is kind of what I'm holding right now. What I see forward is like, how do we create communities of practice that are places of being together? How do we learn how to be together? So we can keep our jobs and we can keep our families and our relationships. It's not like we need to jump into the kind of science fiction future right away, but how do we create a space in our life that's like, all right, this is a new organization, what I call the conscious change collective, but you could call it a community. Or for me, the Neo tribe is like the ultimate Octavia in 20 years version of that. Spaces of being together. What does that look like? How do we show up? What do we do? For me, a lot of that is holding trauma together. So it's kind of co-therapy, co-coaching, co-creativity. Yeah, it's very much that relational we space of just practicing that stillness. But bringing into that the potency and the power of symbol, of uh, story, of narrative, essentially the religious tool set that is just just so highly tuned to how we live together in groups. And I'm coming to the realization is a large part of what makes us humans these days. And then also combining that with the earthy, ancient, pre-civilization, animist experience. And what I recognize is just how potent those forces are and how much they are essentially the blood and bone narrative of fascism. Like that's what that draws on. That's Mm -hmm. how you do that. That's what the Ku Klux Klan brought together and why it was so effective. It was using this same technology for completely opposite purposes. So I'm kind of aware and humbled of, of, of how we need to be so aware going into these new communities of really this discussion you and I are having now is really almost the first step in so many different ways of, what is our identity? How do we form a new meta-narrative together that doesn't just grandfather in all of the domination that we've had before? And how do we really go through this process of self-analysis together? And Yeah, I feel like I'm making some sense of that in this conversation with you. Of, 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 of That's kind of the first process before we can really form these communities or else that's just going to sneak in at the wrong moment. And and. It's not going anywhere. Well, I think, I think it will sneak in. I think that's maybe what we can begin to work with. Mm. Because I think the present moment is always the, the, is always the position of choice. Mm. So I think it's less about how do we create communities that don't replicate these systems, right? At this current mm-hmm. stage, right? I think so much of mm-hmm. the communities of practice is how do we practice working with the ways in which these systems show up Mm. in us? Mm. Because I think part of the pain and the suffering comes from the fact that we expect these spaces to be free of the things that we don't want them to be. When really- Calls coming from inside the house. Calls coming from inside the house. And so what does transmutation look like? You mentioned alchemy, right? What does it mean to transmute these, these learn how to work with these systems and begin to, within our own individual bodies, transform their effects? So what does it look so, you know, this idea of like white supremacy, cultural values, like we talked about on the, in, in Dent with Jenny, mm. uh, Jenny Safanati. Mm-hmm. So what does it look like to notice my perfectionism, my mm. sense of urgency, 
my defensiveness, my quantity over quality kind of leanings, uh, the way I just kind of think my way is the right way, mm. the way I'm paternalistic, the way I engage in either or thinking, the way I hoard power, the way I'm afraid of open conflict, the way I value individualism over collectivism, right? The way I think that there is one objective way and that I can find it. <laughs> The thing the, that you just described me to a T. Well, I described the culture though that white body yeah. supremacy has created and has gone global. Mm-hmm. So the fact that that is your experience makes sense. Yes. And as we begin to realize that that is who we are, because I suffer from all those things too. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that racism is flat and that it's like doesn't, I'm, that's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying in this sure. list, I show up in these ways. I'm participating in the culture in this way. I'm not, again, that's not saying my embodiment has the same experience as other embodiments, right? I'm not saying it's all flat, but I'm saying, what does it look like for me to both and, right? To both acknowledge that my embodiment is what it is and has a history and has a charge and recognize the spaces in which I have been conditioned to practice perfectionism to practice mm-hmm. one right and begin to look at how can I change that in me? How do I notice those moments and make left turns instead of rights? Yeah. You know? Wow. I just had a fascinating thought. I want to try and capture while you were sharing that with me. Like, so the humility that's then involved in recognizing this is kind of like the complexity theory systems theory revelation that you have of like, dissolving our individuality, which again is such a function of the culture, but really I am so much more a product of my environment than I was raised to believe. And I'm starting to see that. And in tandem with realizing that is seeing just how much darkness is under the rug and how much hidden shadow has shaped me. And that's that's a lot, right? To have those two things happen at once, to realize that, ah, oh, Joe really isn't Joe. He's a product of his culture. And his culture is actually so profoundly dark in so many ways that the culture isn't ready to look at yet. So, yeah, gosh, just relaxing into that. It almost, it does, yeah, it's an easier path, even if it's a lot to hold. It's it just feels true, and it also takes the onus away. It's it's but then because the flip side of that, the beautiful side of that, is the new culture we create. The culture you and I are experiencing in this moment is the opposite of that, mm-hmm. and we become that culture. So we become what this is, and that's a positive feedback loop of if we create the right environment, we become that and. We are redeemed perhaps in that moment and and that goodness and that trueness is brought out of us. And this is something I'm really learning about humanity through all this community and social change work. We so much are a product of the environment and the culture we're in. And there's many parts to us. There's many sides to us. And you, you put someone with bigoted or fundamentalist views in an open, loving environment and they will become open and loving and that part of them will blossom and flower and that will be them so there's that goes both ways that dynamic yeah and i think also this is this is the 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 way choice works right 
is that the, the, mm-hmm. the interesting thing about the ones who walked away from Omelas is that most people choose to stay. Mm. The vast majority of people choose to stay. And so to be one who walks away from Omelas is not to necessarily have everyone coming with you. So there's that both and, you know. Uh, now, I'm not sure. This is what I've always been curious about. I was like, where do they go? Mm-hmm. Do they build a new city? Does it end up replicating the same thing? Do they have to make some deal with some invisible force to have the kid under their city? Like, there's all these questions, <laughs> yeah. right? It's like, what happens after, you know, Cinderella gets the glass slipper put on her foot? Like, is she, yeah. is, does she really live happily ever after? Or do they have a troubled marriage and a couple kids? And then, you know, who I don't... You know, there's these these questions that we can ask, right? Like, in terms of the next step of a story. But I think as we think about it, right, every moment is the mo- is a, is an opportunity to practice choosing. Yeah, that and a- and that's such Go a on. that's such a micro kind of way of looking at it. And yet, mm. in every moment, I can say, "Am I being? Am I am I operating out of urgency?" Mm. Ooh, there's some perfectionism coming up. <laughs> oh, I was just paternalistic. Oh, <laughs> okay. So next time something comes around, maybe I can go left instead of right. You know. I like that. I'm seeing there's a limit put on myself, and I'm assuming most of us in terms of the dream, the utopian dream of like i'm trying to burst through and really imagine yeah not a perfect culture no because it's always going to have you know human idiosyncrasies to it but like one that i would be like fully proud and happy to hand on to the next generations like really like get in there just and i'm recognizing there's a block against that people there's this kind of shame that can kick in a little bit. And I'm thinking of this because we're talking about science fiction and these more beautiful worlds we want to inhabit of like, you've got to be really bold to do that because you, you get a lot of pushback. You, uh, you get a lot of, it's difficult for people to even allow themselves to go into that space. That fascinates me because I feel like, we deserve to give ourselves at least the conception of something wholly beautiful, you know, and, and we need to be careful not to hold ourselves to those standards necessarily all the time. But how does that go for you? How do you, do you hold a, a sense of like a, 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 whatever the words for me, it's solar punk, neo tribalism, metamodernism. These are like these kind of, you know, North stars for me, but do you, do you have a conception of that beautiful world? Do you feel you have the audacity to inhabit that in some moments of like what that's really going to look and feel like? Depends on how I wake up feeling. Yeah. I mean, that's my honest answer. Mm-hmm. You know, James Baldwin once, you know, he said, I, I probably will butcher this, but there's some days, you know, when I wake up and I, I just don't know you know, what my place in this world is and what it wants mm-hmm. for me, you know, that's butchering of the quote, but this idea that like, I don't, I, sometimes I don't know, Joe, like, yeah. I, and yet I don't think that that's reason to not try because I think that 
everything we have was an idea that somebody had that was impossible before it existed. You know what I'm saying? Like that's, yeah, that's how it goes. Right. We are our ancestors, hopes and dreams made, made real. And so, yeah, I think when I begin to, I think I, I have this idea, it's called earned hope, you know, like mm-hmm. I think hope's got to be earned a bit, you know, like I don't know if it can be fast, like microwaved, you know, I think the hope can be grounded in the deep future. You know what I'm saying? To see the world, right? That we want. Because on some levels, yeah, I mean, yeah, to see the world that we want to come to, we may not see it, you know? So can you still hope for something if you never see it? If Can you still plant mm. a tree if you never get to eat its fruit? Mm. Or is it about you eating the fruit? Mm. Are we willing to, 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 to do the work to create things that we may never see in our lifetime, but that people after us, right, would be able to benefit from? And I think that's a deep personal, deeply personal, intimate question. Because we... I had a... Go ahead. Now I was gonna say we live in such a cost benefit analysis world, right? Oh, what's the ROI? What's you know, what's my return? What what am I gonna get from this? And so if we wanna be serious about hope, what if it looks what if hope looks like something you'll never get to fully experience? Is it still worth it? I had a taste of it. I am so lucky that I got to step outside of the cost-benefit analysis world and dedicate seven years of my life, of all my energy, everything towards making this new culture, just this little version of it. I mean, it was deeply flawed in lots of ways, but it was definitely a step forward. I got a taste of the hope ambrosia. Like I was drunk on it. That's where my evangelical uh, kind of intoxication comes out. And then... Right when I least expect it, I got that hope baseball batted down. And it's taken me like a year and a half to get to the point of trying to make sense. Because what I realized in that moment wasn't only the collective racial trauma that we're carrying, the class trauma that we're carrying, you name it. It was how that refracts through everyone's individual trauma and that our individual trauma stories is a gateway for that larger story. And not only do we seem to be pretty unaware broadly of the collective cultural weight of what we're carrying, but we're all actively repressing our own individual stories. And I was doing it too. I had the idea that I was somehow a little different and I wasn't doing it and I was holding space for it. And it's like, oh, so it was like a triple whammy. My own trauma, everyone's individual trauma and the collective trauma. So my hope got kind of like dropped in a vat of acid and I've been pretty, you know, I haven't given up, but I've been fairly like, I just keep going deeper. I just keep seeing the the more and more layers and I recognize that's probably not going to stop. But there's this beautiful thing that's also happening of like the more I'm real with myself on that darker truth side, the more real I seem to be able to be about how much potential and potency there is and it's like they go together so 
I'm coming, this conversation for me is beautiful. It's really healing. It feels like a kind of maybe like, yeah, like coming back up again into like a new cycle of hope and understanding equipped with some of the tools being that process of, of going through it myself of, I guess I'm learning to love those parts of myself that I didn't know existed. And if I can do that now and name them and not have too much shame about them, then I can do that for others. And then I can be ready to start to build a new community that's going to fuck up in ways that I'm not sure about that we can then learn about afterwards. So that feels really good. And um, man, I'd love to do more of it with you. I love uh, the constellation of thoughts going on with you. I love your English professor background and how well you hold space, how, how you take that big frame of yours and you've got that presence, but then you're such uh, gentle presence that you bring to it that's that's a potent combination yeah thank you and as you were talking you know again we say like every moment is an opportunity to practice and Mm. you did have an experience and it gave you a taste of the good medicine and it also gave you a sense of where we have to go you know and to grow and so there's a part of me that really wants specifically for white bodied folks, but for all of us, right. To mm-hmm. settle in to the road trip. Right. Mm-hmm. To be able to say, you know, we're in the car, we're driving. We all know what it feels like to be on a road trip and, and feel that like, are we there yet? 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 Are we there? If you've ever gone on a road trip with your kids, you know, right? Yeah. That part of being with kids on a road trip is showing them that no, we're not, but we can still, we're still on the road, but it's not going to be here. Entertain- and we may have things that come up, but we don't know, but it doesn't mean we leave the road trip just because we're not there yet. Yeah. And so, like you said, how do we, you know, accept, relax into the nowness, the urgency, and also the length of time, however, however long that is. I'm not saying it's going to be 400 years to, to do, you know, but I'm saying it's not going to be tomorrow. So how do we, yeah. how do we do that? How do we begin to, to, to relax into that? And I think, you know, like you said, having community, communities that where the, where the practices that we are aware of these things and are asking ourselves, how do we do them differently? And we begin to notice in ourselves and call each other into accountability around these things and then ask ourselves, is this what we want to do? And begin to try to do things differently and see how that goes and run into the bell jar wall and have things lift for us. And (laughs) we go, we see it as that's the point. Mm. Like that's the point of practice, right? It's like bell hooks talks about and all about love. Like, how do you win at love? Mm. How do you turn love into a KPI, into a goal, into something that you can, <laughs> you know, it's not, it's a practice, an eternal posture of practicing, right? Yeah. And so how do we begin to see this work more as a posture, a practice that we are always in relation to, right? Sometimes moving towards, sometimes moving away. 
becoming more conscious of the way that we move so that we can move towards what we want to move towards yeah. in a conscious way so that we can be the people we want to be and that we can build the world, you know, that we want to leave for our descendants. Mm. I think that's a beautiful place to place a comma on what I feel is going to be a lovely ongoing discussion. Yeah, definitely. Thank you for having me. I, I really appreciate the spaciousness of your style and uh, the curiosity that you bring to the world. Um, I think that's, for me, something I try to emulate. And so it's it's so great to have a, a great example of that in this conversation, even um, in real yeah. time. So Beautiful. I love how we kept coming back. We kept circling back. You kept kind of bringing us quietly back to that posture question to that embodiment piece i feel this is kind of like a fractalized version of what we can maybe experience in wider conversations with groups isn't it of like getting into it and then coming back into it it's i don't know it's it's very mystical for me it's this whole joy and electricity of existence of like it's so imminent it's so here and it's not really going anywhere and it's kind of timeless mm -hmm. so just relax into it <gasps> here it is again and yeah that's like the heartbeat of life and to have that experience with someone else and the love that I feel for you in this moment mm. is really, it's really profound. It's really rich. And I guess it's the, that is the North star, isn't it? Of just like, let's keep doing that together. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that's even across the, the thousands of miles and time zones, you know, it's possible. <laughs> yeah, it's possible. And I think that that's that I, if it's possible, then I think it's worth going for. Justin. Thank you, Joe. Appreciate you. I hope you enjoyed the podcast as much as I did. Show notes are available online at www.joelightfoot.org, where you can also find more information about my book, A Collective Blooming. Music by Johnny Eagle. Until next time, be well, my friends.